Turn to the book of 3 John. This morning I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 8, but I want to read the entire letter. 3 John, so we will read verses 1 through 15. John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this, though they are strangers. And they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly disparaging us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, we have just sung of your mercy to us. The longer that we have been in Christ, the longer we have walked with you, the greater our awareness of what inestimable mercy explains not only our salvation, but explains your dealings with us every single day. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? You've forgiven us. You have reconciled us to yourself. You've taken hold of us. We are safe in Christ, safe in your hand and his hand. You've given us your spirit. We love you. We thank you that we do because you first loved us. And you've poured out your love within our hearts so that we don't only love you, but we love each other. Lord, you've even given us a love for the lost, a love for this world that we did not know when we were estranged from you. Thank you for saving us. We gather this morning as your church. We need to be fed with your word. 
We thank you for the ways that we, we've already been ministered to by your word through song. As we have sung truth together and celebrated truth together and given you praise and thanks for who you are and what you've done and what you're doing. But now, Lord, we fellowship together around the preached word and we ask that you would help us. Lord, I confess I cannot preach without you. I need your help. And Lord, would you be at work in me and through me as I preach. But Lord, we just equally cannot learn anything without your working in our hearts. And so we ask you to help us. I know, Lord, we have weary bodies and minds. It's been a long weekend. But Lord, would you help us in this next hour to give you our full attention and to receive the things you have for us in the book of Third John. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of the conference truth worth dying for. Conviction, truth worth dying for. If you ask the question, is the truth worth dying for? One of the things we need to understand is that everything, everything in the Christian life can be summed up by the word truth. Everything in the Christian life can be summed up in the word truth. Our Lord is Himself the truth. John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. The gospel by which we came to know Him is described in the New Testament as the word of truth. The word of God that has been entrusted to us and by which we're being sanctified is the truth. Jesus prayed this for us in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The pathway that we are called to walk as believers is the pathway of truth. John writes in the fourth verse, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The Lord's church, the fellowship of God's people, is a community that can be described as of the truth. A people who are of the truth and in which the truth abides. We heard that in Bill's sermon earlier. What is the church's function in the world but to serve as the pillar and support of the truth? So if we ask, is the truth worth dying for? Understand what we're asking is, is Christ worth dying for? Is the gospel worth dying for? Is the Bible worth dying for? Is the way of righteousness worth dying for? Is the church worth dying for? And the Bible's answer and the true answer is yes. God's truth is worth dying for. And of course, as we declare that, what we are declaring is there is such a thing as truth. There is truth. God's truth. The truth. The truth as opposed to opinion. A lot of opinion in this world that people claim is the truth when it's just opinion. But there is truth. Truth as opposed to error. A fixed standard given by God by which everything is tested, found to be right or found to be wanting. The truth, something substantive, concrete, certain, sure, Factual. 
When we say that the truth is worth dying for, we're saying there is truth. We have believed God, you see, when He tells us He's given us the truth. We've been brought into the truth. You realize this, that God saving you was a transference from one domain into another. When God saved us, He took us out of the domain of darkness, out of the domain of lies, and He brought us into the truth, formed us by the truth, formed us in His Son for the truth. The Bible declares all these things. The gospel is the word of truth, Colossians 1.5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What is the gospel? It is the word of the truth. To believe it is to understand the grace of God in truth. We, the Lord's people, the church, the local church, stands for the truth, proclaims the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is our function. Not, not some kind of manipulation through ideas and rhetoric. Rather, we just say what God said without apology, without shame, without hesitation. Not in some vague way, but in an open way. We say what God says in His Word. We give God's truth. This is our function in the world. 1 Timothy 3.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I've said it many times. You've heard me many times. Is there a place in the world where I can find the truth? The answer is the church. The true church. The real church. This is where you find the truth. We are a people who are described as being of the truth. We heard it in Butch's Scripture reading earlier, that very phrase, but listen to it in John 18, verse 37, beginning at verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered you, Say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What does it mean to be a child of God, a redeemed one, a saved one? It means that now you're a, you belong to a people who are of the truth. And therefore you listen to the one who is the truth. We have come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, This is good, pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. As I said, where were you before the Lord saved you? In the domain of lies. What happened when the Lord saved you? He brought you into the knowledge of the truth. This is why false teachers are described as being deprived of the truth. 1 
1 Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I mean, this is true of all lost humanity, depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. But false teachers are of the world, speaking from the world, and those who are lost listen to them. We heard it earlier, Phil read it, Second John, the first verse, describes the church as a community of the saints and the truth abides with us. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. All of this is on display in the book of Third John. Five times in eight verses, the first eight verses, we find the word truth. The apostle is emphasizing truth in the context of a personal letter. Third John is a personal letter. John wrote something for the church, but a man by the name of Diotrephes, who loved to be first among them. He was standing in the way of John's influence. You see that in verse 9, I wrote something to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. So maybe he didn't even allow John's letter to be read, or maybe he just in some way uh, stood against what he wrote. But his resistance did not stand in the way of John's relationship with his dear friend Gaius. We don't know much about Gaius. This was a very common name. Some say even the most common name in the first century world which John is writing. So we don't know for sure if this is a Gaius who's mentioned in other verses. Many Gaius is mentioned in the New Testament. We don't know who this man is. It does seem to me, as, as you read this, that he probably was a leader in the church that John was seeking to address. He writes this letter to Gaius, giving thanks for the good reports that he's heard about his friend, but he's also writing this to communicate a warning through his friend. I can't get at the church, the apostle is saying, but I'm writing this to you to encourage you in what you have done. We'll talk about that in a moment. And to make clear that what you have done represents what believers should do. And when I come, I plan to address all of this face-to-face. -face. It's a warning that would not only have encouraged Gaius, but all the faithful in the Lord's church. So it's a letter that contains encouragement, warnings, assurances for those who are acting faithfully. A large portion of the letter is devoted to the, to the issue of hospitality, but what is especially emphasized throughout in, in the first eight verses is how God's people are a people of the truth. I just want to begin by pausing there for a moment, encouraging us to let that sink in, that we are a people of the truth. How do you know God's people? How do you recognize them? 
I mean, beyond simply their profession of faith in Jesus, how do you recognize which professions are genuine and which ones are not? So I'm not asking how do you recognize God's people based upon profession. I'm asking how do you recognize God's people based upon fruit? And the answer is we're recognized by our relationship to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. We are not primarily identified by our traditions. I was saved in the context of a Southern Baptist church. And then for a while, early on, went to a Southern Baptist after the Lord saved me. And I grew and went off to Bible college. It was a Southern Baptist Bible college. Later on, went to seminary, to Southern Baptist seminary. I can't tell you how many times in my life that it seems like the people I've heard speak or I'm talking with act as if the most important thing in the world is being a Baptist. And I can say that since the Lord saved me, while my doctrine is Baptistic, that doesn't matter to me at all. Not the doctrine, the Baptist title. Doesn't matter to me at all. I don't care if I'm a Baptist. I care if I'm biblical. I've said it this way. If being biblical means I'm a Baptist, then I'm happy to be a Baptist. But if at any point being a Baptist requires me not to be biblical, I'm going to be biblical. It's the truth that identifies us, not our traditions. It's not our cultural preferences that identify us as God's people. It's the truth. Don't you fear sometimes that we confuse westernized Christianity with biblical Christianity as if they're always the same? And so we have our traditions. You know, I mean, every good upstanding American should have their kids dressed for church in the morning and take them to Sunday school. And I mean, at least it used to be that way in our culture. And so people end up with sort of a cultural religion. And I must be a Christian because I attend church and our family goes to church and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's not what identifies you as a believer, whether your body is in a church building on Sunday. What is your relationship to the truth? Not identified first and foremost by your social concerns, not even spot on, needful social concern like abortion. There are lost people who are against abortion. And there are lost people who are against abortion in the name of Jesus. But they don't know Jesus. That's not what primarily identifies you, your social concerns, not your political concerns. What is your relationship to the truth? God's people love the one who is the truth. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the Word of God, which is the truth. We love our brothers and sisters who are of the truth. And that love, that relationship to truth that produces those loves, love for Christ, love for the Word, love for the church, that love is manifested not just by our words, but by our deeds, by our practices. And that's what he's getting at with Gaius in this letter. He's rejoicing because the fruit of this man's life spoke of his relationship to the truth, therefore his relationship to Christ. So, this morning, what I want us to think about in our time together would be this. Three important lessons 
about this fellowship of truth. Three important lessons about this fellowship of truth. Let's bring it home. Let's think of it this way. What are you going to find in a church? A true church. A congregation, a fellowship of people where the truth abides. What are you going to find in such a church? Even if we are truly the church, we recognize in the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, churches can be healthy or unhealthy at any given moment. So we could also ask it this way, what does a healthy church look like? When it is receiving the truth as it should and responding to the truth as it should, what are you going to find in a healthy church, a healthy community of the truth? So we're going to think about truth's operation in the life of the church. And with each of these three points, I also want to to make a point about common misconceptions about the operation of the truth that, that these verses expose. So three misconceptions about the operation of the truth in the life of God's people as we deal with each of these points. Point number one, verses one and two. We see the love that exists in truth. The love that exists in truth. The elder, John, the last surviving apostle, he's not an elder, he's the elder. He doesn't need to use his name. The man Gaius and the church would understand who he is. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. As Phil pointed out beautifully, the people of the truth will always be at the same time the people of love. Where you find God's truth, truly truly the truth of God is there, you will find the love of God present. Why? Because this is what salvation produces. Genuine love is not accidentally present where the truth is found. It is present because the truth is known. The truth of God is broken in upon a life, burst upon the mind, into the heart. Wherever that has happened, holy affection will also be present. God is the giver of truth. He is the teacher of truth. And the same God who opened our eyes to the truth brought us into the knowledge of the truth, that same God, when He saved us, poured out His love in our hearts. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. No one in this room ever repented or believed apart from regeneration. It is the new birth that explains our repentance. It is the new birth that explains our faith in Jesus Christ. And the same God who opened our hearts just as surely as He opened Lydia's to be able to hear and receive the the truths of the gospel, the same one who brought us into the truth brought us into the sphere of His love. This is why we pray for lost people and why we patiently and gently as Pastor Tom pointed out so well last night, this is why we deal with sinners in a way that is is generous and patient, compassionate, because we understand who saves sinners. 
2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God grants life and at the same time then grants light and at the same time grants love. Love is present because the light is present. Love is present where the truth is present because this is what God does when He saves sinners. Romans 5.5, 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The people of the truth are a people of love, which is why John says to Gaius, I love you, and I love you in truth. Now that could be understood as, I love you truly, but I think given the context of everything else he says in this letter, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I love you because we're both in the truth. Or as he says in 2 John, not only I love you, elect lady, but all who know the truth love you. This is a love that exists in the truth. Which is why love is an evidence that you're in the truth, right? I asked the question earlier, how do you know the people of God? Well, it's their relationship to the truth. As Phil pointed out from God's Word, well, where you find the truth, you're also going to find love. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you love the church? Do you love the people of God? Do you know a love in your heart toward your brothers and sisters that did not exist in you prior to your knowledge of the truth? Has God brought you into the truth in such a way that now you have, a, you have new desires, new affections, holy affections that include love for God's people? 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's a major problem when someone says they know Jesus, but they, they don't see the need to go to church. You know, I have this relationship with God, and I've been hurt by the church, and I've been disappointed by the church, and I'm not in any way diminishing the fact that there will be disappointments and failures related to our relationships in the Lord's church. But the fact of the matter is, God has poured out a love in our hearts for each other that can't be extinguished. There's no such thing as a believer who stops loving the church. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother. If he does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he's not seen. Our love is explained by the presence of genuine faith. And if you say that you have this God-granted faith that is able to see what is invisible on the basis of truth, you love the God whom you've not seen, you love your, your Savior whom you've not yet seen, if you claim to have that kind of faith, but you can't love his child, your brother, who's right there in front of you, you're deceived. 
about your faith in the invisible God. So, John is able to write of his love for Gaius, and to make clear, it's a love that exists because of the truth. I very quickly notice that where this gospel love exists, there will be two realms of concern. Beloved, verse 2, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Just as your soul prospers. He says in verse 3, I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What is John concerned about with his beloved friend Gaius? He's concerned about the condition of his soul. This is what exists in the realm of, of truth and love. It is a concern about people's souls. How are you doing spiritually? If you really love someone, the greatest area of concern in your heart toward that other person will be their spiritual condition. Nothing more important, nothing more lasting. It's amazing to me. When people claim to be Christ followers, claim to know the truth, love the one who is true, know the gospel, and yet, not, not necessarily with their words, but what becomes plain through their priorities is that the soul of the people they claim they love is not their number one priority. Thinking about that this morning, driving to the church, 7.40 in the morning, Highway 99, I look to my right, baseball field, parking lots full of cars, little children out on those fields getting ready to play baseball. Bro breaks your heart, doesn't it? Don't tell me that you don't have things, in fact, as I, I have to say, as I drove by, I said worship service out loud. There's the worship service for these people this morning. So don't tell me that there's nothing that means enough to you to get up in the morning early, to get the kids dressed, to get them out of the, out of the house. Baseball for those people this morning meant enough to do all of that. Watch an NFL football game in Buffalo in January. Stadium covered with snow. People sitting there to watch a football game. No, there are things, every, every human being has something important enough that you make it a priority. Don't tell me that you're operating in the love of God when your first priority is not the soul of the person you say you love. Because they will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And there's nothing more important in their life on this side of eternity than their spiritual well-being. Parents, is your number one concern for the spiritual condition of your child? How many people, their number one concern is their child's academic progress or their athletic progress? Are you concerned about their spiritual progress? Praying for them every day? earnestly prioritizing the teaching of the Word of God in their lives, careful about the example you set before them, striving to walk the pathway you pray that they will walk so that they have a model in you. Is their soul what matters most to you? I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. I'll talk about in a moment how he knew that Gaius' soul was prospering. But then he goes on to say that he has no greater joy than when he hears that one of 
his children, Gaius may have, may have been one to faith in Christ through John's influence, that his children are walking in the truth. But notice John's love and concern for this man doesn't stop with his soul. Because he prays for this man's prosperity in all respects. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper. Includes his health. This may have been a very common greeting in this day, but nonetheless it's sincere on the part of John. In all respects you may prosper and be in good health. Love, true love, the love that exists in the truth cares first and foremost about the soul, but it doesn't stop there. It cares about the whole person. True love does not ignore material reality. And so John is concerned about Gaius's health. He's concerned about all things, business matters, plans he was engaged in, relationships, every other realm of his life. God's love will not make us insensitive to temporal reality. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you see your brother with a need, you care. This is, this is the love of God. This is the love that exists in the truth. Yes, his soul is most important to you, but it's not just his soul. His material needs also matter to you, if you really love him. So that if you have something by which he may be benefited, and you close your heart, I mean, he has a need, a real need, and you could be the instrument to meet that need, but you have no desire to do so. That's not the love of God. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Of course, he's using that as an illustration of, of a demonic kind of faith that is just words. Faith without works is dead. But you get the point. We're true, we're truth has been entered into, there will be true love. And where true love exists, there are two areas of concerns where it gets expressed, the soul and the material things. And both are present. We care about the whole person. So misconception number one about a church where the truth is in operation. Misconception number one, people who are really all about the truth must be cold. We've seen... As Phil says, you know, it's not really the truth when it lacks love. It gets, it's perverted. It's, it's not even the truth. But we've seen places, churches even, where they claim to be all about the truth, but there's no real love one for another. There's no real compassion toward the members of the body. That is a distortion of the operation of truth in the community of God's people. Where the truth is being received, believed, acted upon, you're going to find love there. And it's a, it is a supernatural kind of love. It is a kind of love where people will lay down their lives for each other. It's that kind of love. I do want to say one more thing before I move to the second point. I will say this, though. If you're in a mature church, you're going to meet with mature love. And as we heard earlier and as we see even in these verses, as Phil pointed out, 
it's not a love that won't tell the truth. It's not a love that won't say the hard things. But I would also say this, it's not a love that is necessarily always perceived as emotive. You, know, you, see, you see two people about to get married and they can barely stop from hugging each other. I mean, the love is all over the place. It's, it's, it's visible. Oh, how in love they are. Listen, their love hasn't even been tested yet. They get married. Now they're going to discover what love is. Look at them in 20 years. They may not even hold hands going into the... I mean... But you know what? That couple walking in that restaurant after 40 years of marriage and they're not holding hands probably loves each other, if they're believers especially, this is true. They love each other with a depth and a reality that they did not know in their dating years. So it is in healthy churches. Are God's people there when you need them? You see, that's the question. And will they sacrifice to meet your needs? That's the issue. And there are churches that counterfeit the love of God where they're going to make you feel very doted on and, and make much over you, but you won't find the truth there. And that's not real love. So we see the love that exists in the truth. Second, the joy that exists in truth. Verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You not only find love where there's truth, you find joy where there's truth. You can mark this down. Where our concerns exist, our celebrations exist. What really has our hearts in the realm of concern, this is what's important to me, this is what I think about, pray for. When you see what you're concerned about answered in a way that's positive, what I've been concerned about, now I see good things in this realm, there will be celebration over what you see. It's a joy that has to do with the truth. And John makes clear it's no small joy. I rejoiced greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you were walking in the truth. So if your greatest concern is for another person's soul, parent, if your greatest concern is for the spiritual condition of your children, then your greatest joy would be to see them walking in the truth. More important to you than athletics, more important to you than academics, more important to you than social standing. What is their walk with God? Do they have a walk with God? Has the Lord saved them? That's what's most important to you, right? It's the greatest area of concern. Therefore, when you see evidence that the Lord has saved them and they're prospering in their walk with God, there will be great joy because that's where your greatest concerns have been. Mark where your celebrations occur and I can show you where your greatest concerns really exist. So you rejoice because they're athletically talented. You rejoice because they make good grades. You rejoice over, their, over the things of God when it comes to their lives. I sometimes think that people act as if they would be content. I'm not saying they profess this, but just you just interact with them and watch their responses. It's as if people would be content 
for their child to make a lot of money, be a good citizen, have a marriage that doesn't experience divorce, have children that end up being submissive and obedient to them. You'd be content with all of that, maybe even including a profession of faith in Jesus and church attendance when they are absent the kind of spiritual fruit that can only be present where there's regeneration. And I want to say to you, it would be an absolute tragedy, would it not, for one of our children to be an upstanding person in societal terms and then split hell wide open after they die. Where is your greatest concern? Well, mark where your joys exist. So when people we love walk in the truth, we rejoice. And when others recognize their walking in the truth, we rejoice. I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, how you're walking in the truth. Verse 6, they bore witness to your love before the church. So you have these, these I'll talk about this in a moment, you have these traveling missionaries They've been preaching the Word of God. Gaius extended hospitality to them, took care of them. They have now come to John and they've reported how Gaius loved them and took care of them. That's the report he's talking about. So that this represents Gaius walking in the truth and this gives John enormous joy. So second misconception about a church in which truth operates. One, that it's going to be a cold place. Second misconception, that it's going to be a stoic place. And again, it's sad that so oftentimes this becomes a, you know, the caricature becomes a reality in some places. But the fact of the matter is the church should not be a stoic place. Why is it that we associate doctrinal faithfulness with a kind of approach to God where we're emotionally stifled? There's a difference between emotion and emotionalism. Emotionalism is deadly, it's dangerous, it's deceptive. But emotion is simply that which arises out of our hearts related to our loves, our desires, our joys. We sang earlier, actually it was Scripture reading from the Psalms, about the loudness of their celebration in the name of God, about the ways they were expressive in their love for the Lord. I'm not talking about anything artificial. I'm not talking about anything that you would feel compelled to do. I'm simply saying to you that where truth exists and where love exists, joy will exist, and that is nothing to be ashamed of. If you know what it is to have joy in your heart toward the Lord, would you say amen? That's what exists in a healthy church. There's love, there's joy. Third, the partnership that exists in the truth. The partnership that exists in the truth. Verse 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this though they are strangers. And they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. John rejoices in Gaius walking in the truth, and now he affirms and he exhorts Gaius 
in, in a specific area of his truth walk, that is his support of traveling missionaries. He has done this. He has supported those, verse 7, who went out for the sake of the name. This makes clear these were teachers that he had taken care of. They went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Again, this cooperation, this partnership, this hospitality in these verses is associated with the truth. We're a people of the truth. Where you find the truth, you find love. Where you find the truth, you find joy. Where you find the truth, you find a partnership that exists there. And John not only celebrates this, he encourages more of this. Verse 6, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You have done well and you keep doing well. Hospitality was an absolute necessity at this time given the traveling conditions and the safety conditions of their world. Hospitality was considered a virtue even in common society. But among believers, where you have believers traveling and especially believers who are who are preaching the gospel, advancing the truth. This is a duty for Christians to practice hospitality, to open up their homes, to take care of people. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of examples of hospitality, and Gaius was practicing it, you see. Not just talking about it, he was practicing it. Verse 6, he had demonstrated love. They bore witness to your love before the church. He had demonstrated love that required effort. Verse 5 says he had done this even though they were strangers. That is, he didn't do this because he knew them. He didn't know them. He just knew what they represented. They were doctrinally sound. They went out for the sake of the name. They were financially in need because they would not look to their support for their support from pagans. They trusted God to supply through His people. And they were partners in the truth, verse 8, fellow workers with the truth. This is why he opened his home. He cared for them in a way that was tangible, in a way that was honorable. Send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. This is fitting, you see. This speaks of our faith. This speaks of our understanding of the, of the primacy of the truth that we would honor and take care of and supply for people who represent the truth, who are partners in the truth. Notice how John characterizes what Gaius has done. He represents it as faithfulness. Verse 5, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers. This is faithfulness. Love, as I said in verse 6, well-doing, verse 6. You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And if you wonder you know, who might he be sending on their way now, it may be that Demetrius, verse 12, is the one who brought this letter to Gaius from John, Demetrius himself would be a representative of the truth. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our witness, and you know that our witness is true. He's saying, take care of this man. He's a man of the truth. So continue to do what you've done. This is glorifying to God. It's worthy of God. It represents what the people of God ought to do. Verse 8, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Misconception number three. Misconception one, a church of the truth will be cold. Misconception number two, a church of the truth will be stoic. Misconception number three, that a church of the truth will be isolated. 
uncooperative. I mean, that's exactly what a false leader does in verse 9. He doesn't welcome even the apostles' communication. And he doesn't receive the traveling missionaries. In fact, he puts people out of the church who would receive the traveling missionaries. Theotrephes is an isolationist. Again, it's sad. We see examples of this, don't we? We see it sometimes in these discernment bloggers, so-called discernment bloggers. The attitude is, hey, I trust me and you, and sometimes I don't trust you. I mean, that's the attitude. And you see that sometimes in churches. This is the only church that preaches the truth. This is the only church that stands for what is righteousness. You need to beware that attitude. It's ungodly. It's not true. Butch shared it earlier, and I rejoice to hear him say it. You know, one of the beautiful outcomes of this conference every year is you recognize, don't you, we are not alone. Faithful men of God representing faithful churches, and these men are just a few, just a handful of all the faithful servants of God out there And most of those faithful servants of God, you will never know their name. But they are faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God. And there are faithful churches all about that represent the same. Now, are we living at a time when those churches are somewhat rare, it seems? Of course. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying to you, dear ones, there there are thousands who have not uh, bowed the knee to Baal. Do we recognize that? So what do we want to do? We want to encourage that. And we want to have a part in that. We want to participate with that. We want, to, we want to belong to that. Conviction doesn't lead you to live on an island. It leads you into the joy of the love of God on display when you participate with other people who've gone out for the sake of the name and who are advancing the gospel throughout the world. So what do you find? In the community of the truth. What do you find in the church of Jesus Christ that is described as the pillar and support of the truth? You find love that exists because of the truth. You find joy that speaks of the priority of the truth. You find partnership that demonstrates the fellowship of the truth. What I want to ask you before we, before I pray and I'm done is, do you belong to any of that? Are you one whom the Lord has taken from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His Son? Are you someone who has been brought out of the lies into the truth? And if you say yes, I'm asking, do you see the evidence of that, that you are of the truth? Do you know the love that the Spirit of God pours out in hearts? Do you know the joy associated with with people you love prospering in the truth? Do you know the desire to walk side by side with brothers and sisters who believe what you believe and help them in any way you can as they go out for the sake of the name and advance the gospel in this world? Do you know these fruits of the truth? Or maybe you're someone like I was, making a profession of faith in Jesus at seven years of age, 
in and out of churches with my parents until at 16 years of age, the Lord opened my eyes and saved me. And I went from being a church attender to being a part of the community of the truth. Maybe someone's hearing me. Thank God you're here. You're among us, but you're not yet of us. And the good news is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His mercy is extended to sinners through the preaching of the good news that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who left heaven and came to earth, took to Himself an additional sinless nature, a real human nature, lived as the God-man on this earth, lived a life of perfect righteousness, no sin, no sin, not in the realm of His thoughts, attitudes, words, deeds, sinless, and then laid down His life of His own accord voluntarily. No one took His life. He laid it down as a substitute dying on the cross in the stead of, in the place of anyone, everyone who will ever place their faith in Him. And on that cross, the payment was offered that satisfies God's justice against the sins of anyone who will put their faith in His Son. The only people whose sins are forgiven by the death of Christ are those who put their faith in Christ because it is for them that He died. He didn't die for the whole world without discrimination. He died for the elect of God and those who are the elect of God are brought to faith by God and put their faith in His Son. But the door is open to all. The gospel is declared freely to all. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. He will save you today. You'll go from a church attender to being a member of the community of the truth where there's love and joy and fellowship. If you haven't trusted in Christ, would you put your faith in Him today? And I can tell you that every member of this church who truly knows Jesus would beg you to do so. Amen, church? How kind the Lord has been to us. How merciful, how gracious that He has brought us into the knowledge of the truth and in so doing brought us into His love and into His joy and into the fellowship of His people. And for this, we can just say thank you. Amen? Thank you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what you have done and for what you're doing, Lord. You are you're growing us now that you've brought us into your family and made us your children. You're growing us in the truth, sanctifying us even as our Savior prayed for us. In the truth, your word is the truth. It is truth. Lord, may we grow, taking on more and more of the image of our Savior, and may you make much of your great name through your redeemed people. May you save the lost, Lord. Anyone hearing me this day who has not yet placed their faith in your Son, may you grant them repentance and faith that will bring them light and love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.